Well, well, welcome back to Rebellion Dogs Radio, a 21st century look at 12-step life now with less dogma and more bite. We're looking at thinking, how the brain hijacks our thinking in addiction, how our best thinking can get us and keep us sober, despite what some will say. We look at what other thinkers are saying Dave Chappelle, he's looking at more global issues, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, hopefully in AA recovery, our thinking goes from ingrown eyeballs to uh, being able to, I hope anyway, see my role in the world and uh, what my humble contribution might be to making it a better place. <laughs> we'll be borrowing from Monty Python as I mentioned, Dave Chappelle, and a little bit of uh, AA history. Online uh, bullying led to another youth suicide early in 2018. I was moved by what I read. It was uh, an Australian child. Of course, it could have been anyone's daughter or sister. In a striking reaction, the father invited the perpetrators, the bullies, to the funeral. I read this on the BBC uh, website. One in five children in Australia say they were bullied in the past year. In an emotional Facebook post written on Sunday, Dolly's father, Tick Everett, gave no details of the bullying, but said she wanted to, quote, escape the evil in the world. He said he hoped the attention of Dolly's death last week might help other precious lives from being lost. He also invited the bullies to the funeral, saying if by some chance the people who thought this was a joke and made themselves feel superior by constant bullying and harassment see this post, please come to our service and witness the complete devastation you have created. On Wednesday, the family released a statement to media saying Dolly had been the kindest, caring, beautiful soul. <laughs> a lot of parents wouldn't want perpetrators anywhere near their grieving friends and family. In part, the dad wanted those who took his daughter to suffer that loss too. I see this not so much as revenge, but... Uh, uh, a type of uh, understanding or empathy. In a corrupt system, as bullying is, everyone engaged in the corrupt system, victims, persecutors, enablers, rescuers, are all controlled by this corrupt system. In an elaborate sense, everyone engages in the system, and uh, so everyone is victimized by it. It's natural to demonize the perpetrator, and who can blame those who suffer for feeling angry or vengeful, full stop. Trauma and grief have stages, and the perspective and empathy demonstrated by the suffering father in this case is remarkable. But this Australian father wants the corrupt system that took his daughter to end. He doesn't want the system taking any more victims. That demands an understanding of the system. That asks that seemingly that asks the seemingly unthinkable, empathy for your perpetrator. Resolution requires truth and reconciliation. 
I can't avoid a 12-step slant. I didn't learn everything I know in AA meetings, but 12-step culture did intervene in my accelerating trip down a dead-end street. It gave me a chance to stop, to think, to breathe, <sighs> learn how to think more better. <laughs> I've been persecuted by injustice in my life. Also true, I'm a white male in a world that offers me privilege at the expense of others. Example, everyone in 12-step communities has been discriminated against. There remains a persistent a stigma foist upon all addicts. How many people with eating disorders have not been body shamed? Have you ever tried asking the pastor where your local AA meeting is? or the facility coordinator in the local library that you meet at, if your Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous group can meet there every week, maybe right after the daycare, just before Pilates? If you haven't, can you imagine the fisheye you might get from someone who's also the landlord to parents and childcare professionals? Are Sex and Love Addicts a bigger risk to toddlers than random groups of the public? I don't know. But what do you think the general attitude is towards people with sexual compulsion looking for a place to hang out? Here's a personal example. Um, as a youth, I was 14 years of age in my first uh, AA meeting. I was sober at 16. I had older members roll their eyes dismissively. And as someone who is skeptical about the popular AA belief of a loving, intervening higher power, I face the typical suggestions that uh, I'm the one with the closed mind. I should save time and my life and see it their way. I've been told that my candidly expressed opinion or views could be damaging to impressionable newcomers. You know and I know that it's wrong to treat minority atheists or any other minorities any differently than the majority, but you and I also know it happens. But for me, I can walk out or storm out my choice of that meeting, and I'm a peer among peers on the street. My belief or lack thereof are invisible to the crowd outside. Now let's consider a woman in the meeting who expresses the injustice in AA literature, the way it treats her as a second sex, someone who's told her feminism is an outside issue. She can storm or walk out of the meeting too, but she walks out onto a street or town that still pays her 75 cents on the dollar for the same work a man does, and where she's inclined to be objectified or judged without even opening her mouth. A woman alcoholic suffers from systemic discrimination, and that doesn't end uh, when she leaves the meeting. So my predicament is very different, isn't it? I walk out the door, leave discrimination behind, and rejoin my privilege. Creating a better society requires thought and empathy and cooperation. <laughs> I sound like a daycare teacher. <laughs> I'd love to strike up a conversation about such things today. The relationship with thinking and recovery is evolving 
AA, of course, has something to say about thinking and addiction. Denial, distortion, rationalization. These are thinking traps that have led some to think of addicts as having a different brain than others. That's your addict's brain talking there, boy. I find it uh, remarkably powerful how, while in addiction, with all the harmful consequences that ought to repel me from continued self-destruction, quite irrationalize, I minimize, postpone, rationalize, I avoid help, I stay married to the payoff despite its diminishing returns and mounting consequences. It's hard for me to remember how compelling and habitual my own addictive cycle was. When I hear it, I relate to the idea that addiction sees control of the bridge, to borrow a Star Trek term, and I seem powerless to help myself. Yes, it's the same brain I rely on to avoid temptation today, to make measured healthy choices for myself and to guide me to uh, being a helpful member of my family, my home group, and uh, the rest of the world. I've borrowed from uh, authors, scientists like uh, Mark Lewis. He wrote Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. A neuroscientist examines his former life on drugs. Also, Dr. Vera Tarman, Food Junkies, The Truth About Food Addiction, who have shared on Rebellion Dogs Radio about chemistry and science of the brain and how it hijacks the addict's mind. Long before YouTube videos and TED Talks about neuroscience and addiction, the idea of addiction distorting or circumventing brain function had at least a metaphorical place in addiction and recovery talk. Here's a clip of what we learned since 1939. Now, this stuff is uh, <laughs> it's currently covered in probably the first week of anybody's uh, treatment and it's easily accessible by browsing the web. We have a whole language now that we didn't have in the 30s about your brain on drugs. Let me quote something. This is from the Help Guide at Harvard. In the brain, pleasure has a distinct signature. The release of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the nucleus accumbens a cluster of nerve cells lying underneath the cerebral cortex. Dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens is so consistently tied with pleasure that neuroscientists refer to this region of the brains as the pleasure center. All drugs of abuse from nicotine to heroin cause a particularly powerful surge of dopamine in that nucleus accumbens. Addictive drugs provide a shortcut to the brain's reward system by flooding the, we'll call it NA, with dopamine. The hippocampus lays down memories of the rapid sense of satisfaction, and the amygdala creates a conditioned response to certain stimuli. According to the current theory about addiction, dopamine interacts with another neurotransmitter, glutamate, to take over the brain system of reward-related learning. 
this system has an important role in sustaining life because it links activities needed for human survival, such as eating and sex, with uh, pleasure and reward. The reward circuits in the brain include areas involved with motivation and memory, as well as with pleasure. Addictive substances and behaviors stimulate the same circuit and then overload it. So that wasn't in the doctor's opinion because we didn't have that language then. Our uh, recovery community's understanding of thinking and recovery, well, it's an evolving thing. By the time Alcoholics Anonymous was written, we had slogans, folk therapy to help reconceptualization in early recovery, which in today's language is in part the cognitive component of CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Let's talk for a moment about one of my favorite AA slogans. Think, think, think. Show me a slogan that doesn't get the respect it deserves more than this one. Everyone loves, easy does it, live and let live. I've seen sober clubhouses where they hang the think, think, think picture upside down. What's that supposed to mean? Meditation isn't step one in AA, so perhaps it's a more advanced tool in the kit than, say, first things first. On the other hand, some other members have reduced AA's creed into bumper sticker rebuttals. One member quotes the big book. They're contradicted by another member quoting the big book, both borrowing an authority that neither the book nor its authors laid claim to. Have you seen the Monty Python Flying Circus's skit called Cheese Shop. Fans of the comedy troupe have made a cheese shop game of skill. It's based on the skit's premise. Player one is the buyer. Player one, you have to come up with types or brands of cheese you want. Player two is the shopkeeper. They come up with new excuses why the cheese isn't available today. Whoever runs out of cheese varieties or excuses first loses. AA members could bet each other a second cup of coffee by seeing who runs out of AA slogans first. Sound like fun? Try it with a friend. Someone's buying coffee refills, maybe it won't be you. From meetings like these, these sort of bumper sticker slogan fighting meetings, and most of us know where to find them. Members spout out AA platitudes as keepers of the Holy Grail. Some critics of AAism label AA as anti-intellectual. This characterization asserts that members who gather together to gang up on free thought with a bludgeoning of well-intentioned, yet out-of-context quotes from the book Alcoholics Anonymous that's disparaging towards a more individualized approach to recovery. This could be a CA meeting, an AA meeting, and of course NA bleeding deacons delight in wielding basic text quotes with the same smackdown intensity towards neophytes or NA Titan versus NA Titan. How many AA slogans are there? Some would say three because the big book says so. We have three little mottos, page 135 says in the family afterward, which are apropos, 
first things first, live and let live, easy does it. So there's your three answer. Others would say five because if you go to GSO and get the AA Literature Catalog and order set uh, MS04 slogans for $4.50, you get five hangable posters uh, that also include, as well as First Things First, Live and Let Live and Easy Does It, but for the grace of God and think, think, think. These two editions, looking at them in hindsight, they're kind of uh, directed at uh, polarized corners in AA, maybe. But for the grace of God in one corner, think, think, think in the other corner. For some, uh, God and thinking seem uh, like juxtaposed coping mechanisms. But going back to the meetings I attended in the mid-70s, I was indoctrinated with these five slogans, all five, in their AA stylized lettering, their humble frames, yellowed on the wall. They had been there long before I got there, that's for sure. So who wins this how many slogans official debate? In 1980, the General Service Conference looked to resolve this issue, and the Literature Committee was recommending that defining the slogans be added to as Bill sees it. The conference said no. Why? Well, here's the thinking at the time. The suggestion to add to the book as Bill sees it, a definition of the slogans, was not accepted because it was felt that the slogans may be defined in many different ways. Duh. Advisory Action from the General Service Conference of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 69. So back to thinking. Here's one of the great misunderstandings of AA Platitude Nation. Your best thinking got you here. The suggestion is that you ought not reply on your reasoning brain because... Now, now, didn't your best thinking fail you, delivering you here at AA's doorstep? Don't trust your thinking. Get a second opinion. Trust the group. Trust Yahweh as you understand him. Fact check. It my, In my case, it wasn't my best thinking that led me from indulgence to addiction and the risky, reckless life that necessitated some form of intervention. That wasn't my best thinking. That was my impulsive thinking. With impulsive thinking, addiction thrived. Me, not so much. My life was nearly snuffed out. Impulsive thinking is to be avoided. <laughs> best thinking is something to strive towards, something to cultivate. Deep, Deep thoughts at its right about thinking in the mind. Who remembers, I interviewed a guy named Jack Grisham about a book, A Principle of Recovery. If you haven't already heard the show, there's a link on our website. You'll also find the interviews I mentioned earlier with Mark Lewis and Dr. Vera Tarman. So, Jack Grisham was a punk rocker, and he had something to say about thinking. He doesn't shy away from thinking in AA. In fact, he makes a pretty good case to rebut those your best thinking automatons. Here's what Jack says in his book, A Principle of Recovery, An Unconventional Journey Through the Twelve Steps. 
We've awakened, we've become aware that a life based on selfish will is one of pain and strife. Our thinking has changed, maybe only slightly as we are still new, but it changed enough to move forward. We had an awakening and been given a new mind and now a new way of thinking. On page 86, Bill hits us with this. On awakening, let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonesty, and self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurances, for after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. Seven times he asks us to think. Seven times in one paragraph. Read it. If I turned a paragraph like that into an editor, Jack says, I'd be called up on redundancy. Bill seemingly didn't care. He wanted to develop our thinking. And again, that's uh, from the 2015 A Principle of Recovery by Jack Grisham. So these 12-step members, the ones liberals might call anti-intellectual, can they also find confirmation for their biases in those words of Bill Wilson? Jack Grisham bolds uh, words he wants. Uh, of course they can find <laughs> support for their uh, view as well. I'm sure there are big book zealots that don't find thinking to be repulsive or counterproductive to sobriety. They're not all the same, of course. What about some of the others who see the devil holding court in the playground of the alcoholic's thoughts? If there's a class of member we dare look down at as anti-intellectual, they would highlight their own choice phrases. In the same passage, they would uh, underline, we ask God to direct our thinking. We don't rely on our own free will. And that the brain we have is a gift from God. Their argument may pit God's will as diametrically opposed to alcoholic self-will. Most believers wouldn't see free thought as demonic or blasphemous or on AA. AA members who characterize the thinking alcoholic as being on a slippery slope, they are the minority. They're a loud and vocal minority, but I don't think they represent most members. There are various AAs with various worldviews. They've all found success in AA, skeptic zealots and every variety of belief construct and IQ score have the miracle or the cause and effect of AA to prove that they're right. The refuge recovery approach to uh, thought and thoughts is a holistic one. While addicts have a proclivity to impulsive thought and snap judgment such as, what a lucky break, or this was the worst luck. The whole point of recovery is to learn better coping strategies. Noah Levine writes about intentional non-reactivity in his chapter on mindfulness meditation. What we'll find in that chapter is this. 
Rather than reacting with our usual attachment or aversion, taking everything personally and feeling the need to do something about it, we relax into the experience, seeing it clearly and simply letting it be, just as it is. This is important on two levels. First, we become intimate with our mind state and with how they affect our mood and actions. Second, we begin to see more and more clearly that states of mind and emotions, like everything else, are impertinent. If you don't have it, that's from Refuge Recovery, a Buddhist path to recovery from addiction. So the think, think, think idea, or mindfulness, is about first taking a more scientific or critical or even a curious look at our thoughts along with our feelings and our sensations. Instead of impulsive reactions, what I've learned is to ask if what I'm observing is as it appears. What else could it mean? Why do I see it either as good or bad? Secondly, as Noah Levine points out, I remind myself that feelings aren't facts. I think of them as indicator lights. How I feel may change. Sometimes a wider view, including what might be going on for others in the scene, may lend some context. Here's a personal example. This is a small interpersonal issue, but I hope that Dealing with this better can help me be more uh, global than just being able to cope better with this petty little personality clash. It bugs my ass when someone states or shares with, what you need to do if you're going to stay sober is blank. I don't want to be told what to do. I don't think 12-step meetings have teachers and students. We are equals. We're peer-to-peer. So anyone who sounds like they are instructing, intimidating, or dominating, I get my noise out of joint. Tell us your experience, I think. AA has no expertise. We merely have our individual experience. I sometimes get just as bent out of shape with we talk. We, in our turn, sought the same escape with all of the desperation of drowning men. We will be amazed before we are halfway through. The nice thing about talking in we authorship is it's inclusive. It aims to include the reader with a larger group. Isolation is common in addiction. Addiction's a demanding mistress. We may have suffered, I certainly did, a loss of intimacy. I isolated. Deny, lie, and minimize was kind of an automatic thing. So it's good to try to or want to make the reader or another member feel included. The downside to this we narrative, we stood at the turning point, is that some readers will surmise and even promulgate the erroneous idea that we have some universal experience, the idea that we are the same, we are having a collective experience. It's not true at all for me. I believe we may be a fellowship of common suffering, That said, while the labels are the same, fear, shame, self-loathing, resentment, self-pity, the particulars remain unique to every individual, not universal. Recovery is a pathless land. 
No two members share the same clean, sober path. No two people who follow the same suggestions find identical results. Similar themes, but we don't have identical needs, processes, or results. Utilizing mindfulness where reactiveness comes so naturally. Uh, to borrow Noel Levine's words, here's how intentional non-reactivity helps. Let's say a member at a meeting starts sharing with this we or you language. I feel hostile. It's a knee-jerk reaction. What I try to think of is that this is how the member is expressing himself, herself, themselves. Assuming I catch myself, I picture the person is really just sharing their own personal thoughts through the lens of their own biases, the way I would. That's the message, regardless of the pronouns, whether they're saying you, 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 we, we, we. They really mean I or me. Could it just be a language thing and nothing to do with my presumption that they're trying to persecute newcomers? Can I interpret what she, he, or they are saying instead of getting hostile or defensive. So, a lot of the time I can let the you, we thing go, even without crossing my arms or clenching my teeth. It's my choice, isn't it? If I overlook the pronouns, the finger pointing, maybe there's some takeaway that that person has to say that I can benefit from. And maybe I don't care for or relate to what they say, but isn't it possible that someone else might find what they say and even the way they say it very helpful? Not all about you, Joe. Then there's how I get touchy about some 12-step literature. The big book, for instance. Personally, there are principles I support underneath a lot of the wording. I am sometimes disproving of within AA Letting go is just as effective as let go and let God. That's not two separate ideas. One is secular and one's religious. But it's the same principle. As for the steps, if you choose to work them, and the benefits they yield, which you can find from other places, are they only accessible for theists because of the way they're written? Or are they just written for theists? Theists writing their experience in their own native tongue. The underlying principle transcends a belief in a supernatural guidance in our lives because the explanation of the steps in the book AA is uh, written in a Judeo-Christian language. Uh, I find a great inequity in it. Can I translate what is said into my own worldview? Everyone has to translate something in the big book to personalize that narrative. And when I'm attending a meeting that reads or refers to the book, I have the right to interpret it any way I want to or go to a different meeting. There's plenty of meetings that get along just fine without any big book reading. I want to make a distinction here. AA is discriminatory. Having a book that members tout as a basic text, the AA way, that's blatantly theistic, it favors those who believe in a personal higher power. As long as AA stays stuck in a 1939 explanation of the world, we will appear naive or arrogant to many religious adherents from the rest of the world. Imagine how AA founders might have felt if they were sent to a mosque to find their sobriety. 
Keep an open mind. I love your understanding. Don't be argumentative. You'll kneel to the East and praise Allah. To a feminist, youth, member of the LGBTQ community, they have greater barriers in Alcoholics Anonymous. Suggestions of modernization of AA language may go unheard, or if you bring them up, you may get met with hostility. I would be all for a gender-identifying, sexual orientation, destigmatizing, creed and culture-neutral language, and if there's going to be a vote on it, I'm going to vote for it, because the language is systemically discriminating, and I'm against that. I hope one day we do get past that. In the recent Ontario human rights case, Larry Kay versus Intergroup and AA World Services, we learned that Failing to accommodate members based on creed, just like sexual orientation, gender, disability, race, and other identifying characteristics, it's a violation of the law. We are protected and bound by the Human Rights Code in Canada. When confronted by the Human Rights Tribunal, AA yielded. Other than legal fees and hurt pride, from kicking up a fight and losing, AA didn't really lose anything. Other groups are AA as a whole. The imaginary victim that the anti-atheist AA claimed to be defending never suffered the imaginary injury or indignity that a rigid rulemaking intergroup was trying to protect them from. I'd vote for a new big book, sure. Add a new doctor's opinion while you're at it, along with... Uh, psychological and therapeutic updates. When the vote comes up, let me know. In the meantime, I've got a choice every day to voice dissatisfaction with what is read, don't go, or interpret it accordingly. Thinking more about uh, this, of course, I can ignore the big book completely and have a perfectly happy AA life. No one checks AA members' homework. I'm sure there's a larger percentage of members than we think, who never worked the steps or didn't complete them. Not every member has read Alcoholics Anonymous in the 12 and 12 in their entirety. I certainly know plenty who candidly dismiss the steps along with any form of psychobabble navel-gazing. Others still want a thorough self-assessment, but there are more therapeutic options now than ever before. So if I feel strongly about our literature being discriminatory, why wouldn't I rail against those who demonstrate this harassment or discrimination? Well, to do so would personalize my complaint. The problem is a corrupt system. Even those who protect it and are entitled from it are also victimized by this corrupt system or limited or controlled by it. To fault people for finding comfort in their theistic view of recovery, that's not helpful. That isn't uh, solution-based. I need or we need the majority. I need or we need the majority, those who relate to the 164 pages as written. We need those people on our side. AA intended to be a refuge for everyone. In the context of a mid-20th century middle America, AA did welcome everyone. 
<laughs> every white heterosexual guy. Seriously, it was uh, a different time then, and I argue that AA was ahead of its time in terms of accommodating anyone who had a desire to stop drinking. Some of our literature and meeting rituals have not changed with the times. We've discussed the nature of AA's literature before. Our literature is substandard because it's sexist, heteronormative, theistically biased, American-centric. Again, I'm for following AA's principle of inclusion, love, service. I'm for laws such as the Human Rights Code in Canada, civil rights enshrined in the Constitution of the United States of America and UK's Equity of Human Rights Commission. Every developed world has these codes. The United Nation Declaration of Human Rights says this, All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in the Declaration without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth or other status. Tribunals often, in domestic matters or diplomats in international matters, navigate competing rights. How does one individual or group's rights get elevated without impinging on the rights of another? For women to vote, the support of men were needed. American civil rights required the advocacy of the white majority. For change to take place, the system ought to be demonized, not the benefactors of such injustices. Tyranny of the majority does present challenges. How does a minority or individual overcome an angry, frightened, hasty, or indifferent majority? We've talked about this before. Since 1975, atheists and agnostics have lobbied the General Service Office of USA and Canada for a pamphlet. You're likely aware this petition will be heard again August of 2018. The Trustees Literature Committee has already begun preparation. Uh, they will consider adopting the British pamphlet, the God Word, or creating their own. So it's going to be discussed. Over 10 times this benign request has been entertained and previous committees have always found a way to deny the request. Was it fear? Too much hassle? Indifference? Ignorance? Hostility? I, I don't know. That never makes it to the General Service Conference final report that's available for all AA members to read. Once the only the outcome of advisory actions, the financial data and edited versions of speeches and reports are printed in our final report. Now, just to change gears, who's seen the latest Dave Chappelle routines on Netflix? In a comedy club in L.A., Chappelle gets real. That's how he describes it. Others would say he offends everyone. 
He talks about oppression, discrimination, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too headlines, American football player Colin Kaepernick, his protest against police brutality. He talks about civil rights. He talks about apartheid. Trigger alert. <laughs> Many be, may be offended uh, by uh, Chappelle's uh, critique of groupthink. He's not an advocate of political correctness. Public outrage and issues that all audiences would surely line up on one side of or the other come up here. Many comics would stay the heck away from anything he talks about here. Wow. I mean, it is really bad out here, isn't it? Neither for nor against. Here are some uncensored highlights from Chappelle's latest. <laughs> and maybe last for a long time, depending on uh, how the public perceives this. Every fucking person who takes a stand for someone else gets beaten down and we watch. Over and over and over again, we watch. We should fight for one another. Real talk, man. It's not a racial thing. It's about us making our society better. It's like these women who are coming forward, the Me Too thing. We say they're brave, and many of them are. That's... There's a huge omission from the narrative that this wouldn't have gone as far if some women weren't willing to do the work. You can't expect every woman to hold the line. Some women can carry things heavier than others. We should fight for one another. We should forgive the ones who are weaker and support the ones that are stronger. Then we can beat the thing. You guys keep going after individuals. The system, if you do this, is going to stay intact. You have to have men on your side. I'm telling you right now, you're going to have a lot of imperfect allies. Ladies, I want you to win this fight. I've got a daughter, so I'm rooting for you. If you win, she wins. I don't know if you're doing it just right, but who am I to say? I don't think you're wrong, but you can't make a lasting peace that way. You got the bad guys scared, that's good. But the minute they're not scared anymore, it will get worse than it was before. Fear doesn't make a lasting peace. Ask black people. Without irony, I'll say this. The cure for L.A. is in South Africa. You motherfuckers need truth and reconciliation with one another. The end of apartheid should have been a bloodbath by any metric in human history, and it wasn't. The only reason it wasn't is because Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and all these guys, they figured out that if a system is corrupt, then the people who adhere to the system and the incentivized and are incentivized by the system, are not criminals. They are victims. The system itself must be tried. But because of how the system works, it's so compartmentalized as far as information. The only way we can figure out what the system is, 
is for everyone to say what they did. Tell them how you participated. I came back here because I will shoot my final Netflix special tonight. And after it's time to make America wait again. That was from Dave Chappelle's 2017 Equanimity and the Bird Revelation special. The front cover of the summary of the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada in block letters reads, Honoring the Truth, Reconciling the Future. This is a 2015 report on a 100-year lasting residential school program that targeted Indigenous youth, separating them from families and culture, indoctrinating children into the legally dominant Euro-Christian society. Within the report, 6,000 victims' testimonies are heard, including cases of sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. Truthing was intended not to shame or blame. As a nation that prides ourselves on a reputation of democracy, peace, and kindness, we, the majority, had to take our own inventory and hear those who we had harmed, those who had been discriminated against, harassed, abused, and dehumanized. They needed to be heard. The aim of honoring truth was an aid of reconciliation. I intended uh, last year, 2017, the Indigenous Health Practices and Research Conference in Hamilton, Canada. One of the speakers, a York University professor, Maya Chakabi, said something that sounded poetic and profound to me. She is an Anishinaabe beaver clan from Kaministikia, which is Thunder Bay, Canada. And she uh, refers to Canadians in two categories. There are indigenous people and settlers. What can settlers do who care about truth and reconciliation? Well, Maya Chakabi says, get unsettled. True that. Confronting our own privilege and the historical oppressive conflict confronting that is unsettling <laughs> and I've committed to trying to mindfully be more unsettled in my life. Truth and reconciliation is akin to taking inventory and making amends. There are also good themes for group inventory or fellowship-wide inventory and how to right wrongs and or improve our society. We need to unabashedly record and face truth, we as victims and we the same people as perpetrators, the harms done to us and the harms we've done others. A better future is, as far as I'm concerned, involves thinking globally and acting locally. I'm an atheist in AA, yes, I welcome an AA whereby literature better addresses our underrepresented minority. I'll lobby for this. Also, what can I do in my own home group? Not every improvement in AA requires consensus or waiting around for others. Dave Chappelle reflects on South Africa overcoming apartheid without revenge upon the ruling white class. 
would I be happy to see the dawn of a new inclusive 12-step community without calling out those who have promulgated our systematic discriminatory ways? Well, yes. It helps to see them as, in a way, victims or controlled by the same oppressive system I, I am. What enjoyment can there be from fear-based stewardship that stifles any attempts to try something different? In an unfair, unbalanced system like AA, it's not like there's a financial reward for being a big book fundamentalist. There is no 1% because there is no wealth. Winning, if there is winners and losers in a dysfunctional system, doesn't look like what I think of as winning, not in AA especially. History hints that a fellowship refusing or avoiding accommodation of reasonable requests from minorities sets course for reification, a hardening of the attitudes leading to our own self-engineered extinction. Many would blame outside forces for demise, but only our own intolerance and unwillingness would be to blame for our downfall. Old-fashioned AA tradition talk includes unity. What does unity mean in our increasingly multicultural and label-resistant society? I think, think, think unity is best achieved by accommodation. Our current system requires that the many give their blessing to the few. A couple of years ago, uh, there was a motion because the literacy challenged wanted a simplified big book. Uh, they couldn't have one without the approval of those who will never read this uh, simplified big book. A contemporary title for the gay and lesbian AA pamphlet requires the cooperation of he the heteronormative majority. I think we'd be better to try a policy of accommodation. Any reasonable request should be accommodated. Tribunals favor requests for accommodation when asked. The exception would be when granting accommodation would cause undue hardship to the larger society. Yes, there will be time, expense, and growing pains to any accommodation. While that's hardship, it's not undue hardship. It's nothing that would bankrupt or render an organization dysfunctional. In AA, for instance, following the General Service Conference in April, every new advisory action costs money and takes time away from a limited staff and volunteers already doing their share. So if change for a better costs money and takes time, that's not undue hardship. It's simply the price we pay for progress. There should be hardship when it comes to bettering AA. Any claim of undue hardship ought to hold the onus of proof. Using the example of the plain text big book, it would have cost money and taken time. That is an undue hardship. I'm inclined to believe that this request was denied because of fear. Not a fear about what would happen, but 
a catastrophizing of what could happen if we make this change for this group, then women and transgenders and atheists will want to change our message. All will be lost. Accommodation will change the way things are. The argument, but it's always been this way, is a poor excuse not to grow. Why fear change? There's no basis for slippery slope or opening the floodgates arguments for not accommodating most requests made in the 12-step fellowship coming from underrepresented minorities. Remember one of the objections to listing gay and lesbian meetings back in the 70s? Well, if we start listing these meetings, what's next? Child molester AA meetings? That's catastrophizing. It's not really a good argument. Anger and polarization that this kind of catastrophizing brings delayed the agenda in that case for a whole year. In an accommodation model, that argument would never be um, entertained. Accommodation would have proceeded this way. Well, we'll allow the gay and lesbian groups to hold themselves out as gay and lesbian groups. Then, and I mean if... An AA meeting for child molesters asked to be so identified. Well, then we'll deal with it at the time. Slippery slope arguments aren't rational. We all make them We're in our head. I catastrophize. To use uh, 12-step folk language, that's your disease talking, buddy. Turn it over. Easy does it. Here's something uh, Nelson Mandela said in 1990 in The Struggle Is My Life. Since my release, I've become more convinced than ever that the real makers of history are the ordinary men and women of the country. Their participation in every decision about the future is the only guarantee of true democracy and freedom. I like that title, The Struggle Is My Life. You hear it in AA that the struggle, that is the spiritual journey. Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, was the chair of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Committee, which was created by Nelson Mandela's government in 1995 to help South Africa come to terms with their uh, troubled past. He was the chairman, and in an address, he said uh, this, and I'm sure it's uh, partly personal, not just preaching. To forgive is not just to be altruistic. It is the best form of self-interest. It is also a process that does not exclude hatred and anger. These emotions are all part of being human. You should never hate yourself for hating others who do terrible things. The depth of your love is shown by the extent of your anger. However, when I talk of forgiveness, I mean the belief that you can come out the other side a better person. A better person than the one being consumed by anger and hatred. Remaining in that state locks you in a state of victimhood, making you almost dependent on your perpetrator. If you can find in yourself to forgive, 
then you are no longer chained to that perpetrator. You can move on, and you can even help the perpetrator to become a better person too. That was Desmond Tutu. Examples are out there. I'll uh, wrap up with this, because I don't think uh, learning from others is an outside issue. And I don't think Uncle Bill thought, thought, thought that learning from others was on AA either. With over 20 years sobriety, he said uh, this, AA was not invented. Its basics were brought to us through the experience and wisdom of many great friends. We simply borrowed and we adapted their ideas. Thanks, 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 Bill W. We'll try to keep your pioneering ways alive in AA. Thanks for listening. There's a PDF and a transcript of this recording at rebelliondogspublishing.com. Help yourself and share at will. We're all in this together. Like jumping from a ledge, retreating to a burning building. Time to choose the uncertain, to settle the breaking even. A parable comes to mind from one of life's wise Eskimos. Don't remember it exactly, but this is how it goes. Something like this. When you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. Life's a crowded room full of faceless strangers. When you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. I can't self again by so bring all the dangers. When you confess you have a dream, the others just don't get it. Like an aging hipster, you don't want to be pathetic. So you're torn between a good living and a good life. You ask if it's worth the risk, the sweat and strife. You're asking me. When you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. Life's a crowded room full of faces strangers. When you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. I can't settle for getting by, so bring all the dangers. I won't buy like a sheep, so I fight for what I see You won't put me to rest with my concerto incomplete Life is not a punishment, more like a treasure hunt So I'm jumping from the ledge, taking a run for the front As far as I can see When you're not the lead dog, the view never changes Life's a crowded room full of faces strangers when you're not the lead dog, the view never changes I can't settle for getting by, so bring all the danger